On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. The astrophysicist Mario Livio spent 24 years at the Space Telescope Science Institute of the Hubble Telescope, which has revealed the reality and beauty of the universe to scientists and citizens in whole new ways. The Hubble's successor, the James Webb Telescope, will soon be fully operational and further some of the questions about the early formation of the universe and the origins of life to which Mario Livio has been devoted. I spoke with him in 2010 while he was studying phenomena like dark energy and white dwarf stars. And this has become an on-being classic, a conversation which imparted me across the years with a thrilling sense of all we are learning about the cosmos in this generation in time, our terrible earthly woes notwithstanding. Also, how scientific advance always meets recurrent mystery, from the emergence of life in the universe to the very heart of mathematics and the puzzle of dark matter and dark energy. Until 1998, we didn't know that this dark energy exists. And now, you know, we know it's the dominant form of energy of our universe. So whenever you think that you've reached some sort of a you know, that you cannot go beyond, okay, this is all that there is to know, and so on. Somehow we discover that there is yet something even more mysterious that hides behind all of that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Mario Livio was born in Romania in 1945. His early childhood was framed by turmoil that came of being born Jewish in Europe in that period. After what he describes as a few Oliver Twist-like years, he settled with his mother in Israel, where he became a physicist. He has written seven popular science books. Among them, though he is not a religious person, is God a mathematician? This question that is the the title of your book, um, Is God a Mathematician? I want to honor the fact that the point you make that the question itself is what's most fascinating to you. And, um, and I'd like to, to dwell on that. You know, wh- what is interesting? Why this? What does this question mean to you? Um, and, you know, how, how do you find it arising? Kind of take us there. So the question, you know, was phrased after um, there was a physicist called James Jeans uh, in, in the last century. And uh, he once um, used phrases such as, you know, God is a mathematician and so on. And I, and I phrased the question, you know, based on, on his uh, words, more or less. And the meaning of the question really is, how come that mathematics is as powerful as it is, uh, you know, in explaining, you know, almost everything in the universe? That's one part of the question. And the second part, uh, which is equally intriguing, is... Uh, is mathematics discovered? Namely, you know, mathematics is out there and we are just discovering the truths of mathematics? Right. Or is it an invention of the human mind and it really has no existence outside the human mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are the two main questions that I try to deal with in this book. So let, let's talk first of all, all about just the 
tease out the idea of the power of mathematics. I mean, you and other scientists use words um, to describe mathematics that are also words that are used to describe the divine, right? Omnipresence (laughs) and omnipotence. Um, what, yes. what does that mean for you when you hear that? What, what does that kind of language uh, connote? Well, suppose I want to describe, you know, all the basic forces of nature, or I want to describe all the basic subatomic particles of nature and so on, or I want to describe what does the universe at large do. Uh, it turns out that uh, the way, only way, in fact, that we know how to describe these things is using mathematics. And mathematics turns out to be almost too powerful in describing all of these things. I'll give you a very, very simple example. I mean, um, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, who formulated the law of gravity and so on. So at his time, there were some astronomical observations that were done by uh, Johannes Kepler and others and so on. And the observations at the time uh, were not particularly accurate. Yet from these somewhat scanty observations, Isaac Newton managed to distill a mathematical law that describes gravity. And that law, already by the 1950s, was shown to be accurate to better than one part in a million. Mm-hmm. So the mathematical theory turns out to be even more accurate than the observations on which it was based. (laughs) You know, how come? I mean, what is it that gives mathematics such powers? And that kind of points at a a sense that that I've had in conversations with other scientists across the years, that this idea that that mathematics... uh, has a reality and truth about it that may even be greater than the reality and truth of human perception or the physical world that it is measuring or describing. Right. And, <laughs> and, and I actually know a number of mathematicians and theoretical physicists who, who speak exactly in the terms that you just described, that, uh, you know, they have a reality, mathematical concepts have a reality about them, which is in some sense even stronger than the physical reality that we observe. There are people who, who absolutely speak in those terms. I mean, there is another aspect of it which people found always fascinating and I find fascinating, which is, you know, mathematicians, really pure mathematicians, they like to do things with absolutely no application whatsoever in mind. You know, they develop all kinds of mathematical theories and they don't think that this will ever have any application. Sometimes they are even proud Mm. of the fact that it has no applications. Uh, And yet, you know, decades or sometimes centuries later, it is found that those mathematical theories provide precisely the explanations needed for some physical phenomena, you know, and so on. How is this possible? I mean, that's part of this question, you know, of is God a mathematician? I I have to say that until recently, I was under the uh, false impression that that in general, there was an assumption that basic mathematical truths are discovered rather than invented. That, you know, Einstein discovered <laughs> E equals MC squared, that he didn't invent it. And then I was speaking not that long ago with two astronomers, George Coyne and a guy, Consolmagno, who told me that there is this ongoing debate about whether mathematics is invented or discovered. And then I I read your book and I find that, in fact, you've traced that across the centuries and that it's very much alive today. I mean, is that something that you're aware of, that you've been aware of throughout your career? Uh, 
I've been aware of it uh, throughout my entire career, but um, so let me give you a sense. I mean, the, the discovered business started with Plato, I mean, uh, so in ancient times, yeah. namely the truths are out there and uh, all we do is uh, discover them in the same way that astronomers discover new galaxies. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. they were always there, but we just discover that they exist. Uh, there are others who will tell you, in particular, people who come from, um, you know, neuroscientists and the likes, uh, who will tell you that, no, there is no such thing. Um, it's all an invention of, of the human mind, really, that, you know, we invent all these things. And uh, it, it's all like a game. You know, we play a game, we invent the rules of the game and so on. It's right. a bit like playing chess. Right. Um, you know, the conclusion I reached which some people are unhappy with because we always like things to be black or white. Yes. I mean, pe- people can even live with gray, uh, but they cannot live uh, so well with black and white. Right, both and, um, yeah. You see, when you pose the question like this, so is mathematics invented or discovered, you immediately kind of give the impression that the answer has to be that it is either this or it's that, and it cannot be both. Mm-hmm. But what I think happens is that mathematics is a very, very complex mixture of inventions and discoveries. So I I can give you an example. Okay. So you may have heard about imaginary numbers. This is like the square root of minus one. Uh, you, You know, there is no number that if you square it, it gives minus one. Okay. Because when you square a number, you multiply the number by itself, even if the number was negative, when you multiply it by itself, it becomes positive, right? Mm -hmm. So there is no square root of minus one. Uh, Yet mathematicians invented a new concept, which they call an imaginary number, and they denote it by the letter I, okay? Now, once they invented this concept, then they start to discover all kinds of relations that this concept has. And those are true discoveries. The discoveries are essentially forced upon you. Hmm. So that's the difference. So, and, and you know, like the the question, is God a mathematician? Um, the longer I, I, you think about this question of whether mathematics is invented or discovered, you find that e- just the act of asking the question itself is so rich, right? <laughs> I mean, um, it, it is, and, yes. you, and, you, and you end up with all these uh, puzzles or mysteries that, that feel to me that they're verging on the philosophical and the theological as well, right, by, by implication, um, so you can say that our minds give rise to mathematics, but then, then mathematics are found to explain the physical world. That's uh, right. Which is very We'd, a very mysterious thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, my colleague Roger Penrose, whom yeah, I, I don't know if you have ever interviewed him. I haven't, but I know um, his work. Yeah. Yeah. So he he's a, a very famous uh, uh, mathematical physicist. So so he once said that there are these three worlds and, and, and three mysteries. Mm-hmm. So the three worlds are, one is uh, the physical world. You know, this is the world where we exist. There are chairs, tables, there are stars, there are galaxies, and so on. Uh, then uh, there is a second world, which is 
the world of our consciousness, if you like, you know, our a mental world, the world where this is where we love, where we hate, you know, and so on. All our thoughts are there and so on. And then there is the third world, which is this world of mathematical forms. These are, this is the world where all of mathematics is there, you know, uh, the theorem of Pythagoras and so on and so forth, all these, these the imaginary numbers and all that. So these are the three worlds. And now come these three mysteries. One mystery is that somehow out of the physical world, our world of consciousness has emerged. That's one right. mystery. Right. A second mystery is that somehow our world of consciousness or mental world gained access to this world of mathematical forms, you know, that we were able to right. invent and discover all these mathematics. And third, and maybe most amazing mystery, is that we find that this world of mathematics provides the explanations for the physical world. <laughs> right, right. So, so it's that circle again. Right. Uh -huh. So, 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 so there are these three worlds and, and 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 three mysteries, which you know, of course, at the end of the day, they are all part of one universe, right? Uh, but but it's an interesting way of of, of posing the question. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with astrophysicist Mario Livio. Something else that I find to be a bit in the category of something mysterious is um, how important beauty is to mathematicians. You know, it's a oh, word. it's very, very important. <laughs> it really is very, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, although, you know, like beauty in the arts and so on, it is somewhat more vaguely defined. Yes. You know, even in the arts. I mean, there was actually a period where where artists and people who talk about aesthetics didn't even want to use the word beautiful, you know. They, they thought, it, you know, they really shouldn't talk about that, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and so on. Um, but um, in, in mathematics, I think that um, there is a little bit more of an understanding of what is meant by beauty. Uh, and generally, what is meant is um, something that I sometimes call simplicity, and it really means something like reductionism, uh, which means you want to be able to, with as little as possible, explain as much as possible. Right. It's easier a little bit to explain in, in physics is that, you know, we try to formulate just a few laws of physics and explain all phenomena with those few laws, okay? And, 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 and something like this applies to mathematics. I mean, there are these concepts of symmetry in particular, that many objects in mathematics possess certain symmetries, and we like those symmetries, uh, you know, and the way they operate in, in explaining everything. I, I would like to talk about group theory, the language of symmetry, which is something else you've, you've worked on in your book, um, The Equation That Couldn't Be Solved, um, which does tease out an aesthetic connection between mathematics and art and nature. Um, would you tell that story a little bit, sort of introduce that subject? 
Sure. Um, so, so symmetry is something we all recognize. At least, you know, we recognize uh, some of us when when we hear the word symmetry, we only think of bilateral symmetry. You know, the symmetry that our face has, or you know, or symmetry that uh, some building of a, of a church has. You know, and so on. Uh, but uh, in mathematics, there are many types of symmetry. So there is what we call symmetry under translation, which is a symmetry that you might encounter in, um, I don't know, in wallpaper, for example, where you have a certain motif that repeats okay. itself yeah. as you move in a certain direction. Or you might encounter it in a work of music where, you know, a certain thing repeats itself as, you know, as the piece goes along. Uh, so that's one type of symmetry. Symmetry basically is a quantity that it describes something that does not change. You know, you, you do something and things don't change. For example, in the case of the uh, symmetry, bilateral symmetry, it means you basically reflect it in a mirror and it doesn't change. Or, uh, you know, if you take a phrase like, uh, Madam, I'm Adam, uh, this is a palindrome, which means if I read it from the back to the front, it read, also reads, Madam, I'm Adam. Uh, so that's symmetric under this back to front operation and so on. So there are many symmetries and we encounter them in shapes, we encounter them in music, we encounter them in a variety of arts, and we encounter them in physics and, and in the sciences. Now, mathematicians came up with a language to describe all these symmetries, and I mean all these symmetries, everything I just mentioned, falls under one type of mathematical language, and that is the language that's called group theory. And it has relevance, as you said, for wallpaper and the human perception of the beauty of a face and uh, a melody, as well as great scientific principles. Right. It's really fascinating. Um, you know, I can't help but make a connection here, and maybe this isn't right, but the fact that you... Um, also in your life, are a lover of art. I am. <laughs> I mean, that, that there's an aesthetic side You seem to, you. to be very, very well prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Well, <laughs> um, so, you know, so I don't want to, I don't want to force a connection here, but, um, you know, let me ask you this way, as you uh, study this, um, especially this implication of symmetry and how that figures into the human response to beauty, did that... Did that give you insight into your, into this passion you have for, for art? I, I must say it didn't. No? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I honestly don't have um, a very good explanation for my passion for art. <laughs> um, um, yeah, you know, my family was vaguely connected to art. Uh, I personally, I have no talents really uh, in that area. And maybe it, it simply came out of admiration of what other people can do, uh, of which I cannot do at all. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I did develop relatively early on um, a, a passion for art. And um, that ran kind of parallel to my, my, my uh, passion for science, uh, they, uh, I, I do try to combine the two, you know, when I write and so on and so forth. Right. And of course, you, you know, these things sort of come to my mind uh, effortlessly. I mean, you know, I, I talk about science and some of the, the metaphors that I use will come from art, you know, and so on. But I, I, I do not feel that 
my passion for art was inspired my, by my love for science. So Einstein would sometimes talk about this core sense of wonder that was there, that was an- animating for him as a scientist. And, and he would talk about how he had that in common with the arts and religious people. I mean, so do you, do you sense some impulses that are in you that, that animate these two passions? There, are no, there, are, there is no question, but, you know, these are subtle and they may be very deep, but they are nevertheless subtle connections. Uh, nevertheless, I mean, I think it will be false to say that science and art have in a substantial way influenced each other or that science and religion have in a substantial way influenced each other. Right. Um, so, I, I, so I don't think that has happened, but they all stem from this sense of wonder. Right. And see, that's more interesting to me um, than trying to force that relationship. And, but I, I think that particularly happens in American culture, that when we talk about science and religion, you know, not to mention art in the same breath— we try to come up with something more linear. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm curious. I, I, I completely agree with you uh-huh. on, on this. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, there is a certain way in which I, and, and I've given this some thought. You know, I have. I, I'm not myself a, a religious person, but but I have great, uh, you know, respect for uh, religions of of everybody. And I have many colleagues who, you know, happen to be uh, religious people. And by that, I mean, you know, Jews, Christians, Muslims, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. from various religions. Um, And um, I I think that the way that I find that that develops is by something exactly by not forcing these things. Right. Namely, a person who feels a need for God does not want, I think, a God that created the universe however many years ago and then left this universe to its own devices. Mm -hmm. A person, I think, who has a need for God needs a God that is there for him or her every day, every minute, every second. Science has nothing to say about a God like this. You know, this is in a completely parallel plane than the plane in which science operates. So I think that the places where you generate these unnecessary clashes are when actually people try to force the connection, which is exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't want to offend anybody, but I think that this does a disservice both to science and to religion. Right. You know, something that's intriguing... I mean, I hope yeah. that you agree with me. I mean, I... I, 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 do, I, I do agree I, with I, you. I, I, <laughs> I agree with you, but uh, I agree with you, but I, I but think... But feel free to disagree with no, me, no. too. I mean, you know. Oh, I w- well, I will, but I also... I think that we have to keep putting... I mean, the the way you say it is different. It comes out of your experience and your perspective. And, you know, something that also intrigues you. I mean, you said you're not a religious person. And, and of course, Einstein wasn't a religious person in the sense of believing in a personal God. Something that interests me in his work and that I, I find coming up again in your writing is uh, 
in your writing and the writing of other scientists is that even scientists, and perhaps because, as you said, however much we discover, there's still much, so much that's largely inexplicable, um, that people end up using the word God. Um, you know, like he would say, I needed to know what God was thinking. Or when he says, I don't think God plays dice. Yeah, well, and right. That was not a... That was about quantum physics. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, but, but you see, when he said that, he did not mean to say that he knows how God spends his time. Yeah. What he meant to say by that is, I don't think that the universe works in this way, you know, and so on. And, and, and that's the same sense of, you know, the question, is God a mathematician? Namely, how come mathematics is as powerful as it is in explaining the universe? Yes, but, it's not It's not uh, meant to ask what is the profession that God has. Right, right. But is there something revealing in the fact that that, that word God, um, in these moments when the great questions are being posed, that, that even scientists reach for that word God? Um, not, I'm saying, yeah, as a statement of belief, yeah, but what, what there's... Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. I, th- I think that, yeah, in a way, yes, it's that is taken to to mean some unifying feature of the universe mm-hmm. and is that is that kind of what you what's behind that word for you even when you use it in the title of the book is god a mathematician yeah i like somebody asked me you know something like that and and oddly enough you know because you actually wrote a book with that title i said that i, I mean god Exactly as a, as an Einsteinian God, um, uh, that you know, it's it's in some sense a synonym to the workings of the cosmos. a short break. More with Mario Livio. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, how will we hold on to ancient wisdom traditions while applying them creatively in today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with a theoretical astrophysicist, Mario Livio. He spent 24 years at the Space Telescope Science Institute, which coordinates the science operations of the Hubble Space Telescope, which launched in 1990, and the James Webb Telescope, which will be fully operational in 2022. This science has allowed the rest of us to see some of the phenomena Mario Livio has studied— extrasolar planets, neutron stars, white dwarf stars, and the formation of galaxies in the early universe. This is a classic on-being conversation, taped in 2010, and it is as illuminating today. It's formed me across the years with a basic sense of how scientific advance meets recurrent mystery, including the very heart of mathematics as the element and language of science. 
in the book is God a Mathematician, and in a lot of your work, you you do take a long view of time and history, and so you trace the history of human fascination with mathematics and scientific work with mathematics, beginning with Pythagoras and Plato, right, to the present day. And I wonder if there was anything that you saw in tracing that history that you uh, learned about our uh, present reality that really gave you something to work with, um, this context that you hadn't quite seen before. Well, the same type of questions that um, mathematicians or scientists dealt with, uh, you know, even thousands of years ago, continue to intrigue us today. Right. And and in mathematics, even more so than in, in other sciences. I mean, okay, physics, for example, the physics of Aristotle is not the same as our physics today. Mm-hmm. I mean, the questions were the same. Yes, I mean, he also tried to explain, you know, the universe around him. Uh, and so do we. Right. But we don't use the same physics. Uh, in terms of mathematics, uh, we largely use the same. Well, mathematics has evolved, but the mathematics that the ancient Greeks did is still true today, you know, in those areas where, where it, it is applies. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, students today in school learn the same geometry that Euclid did at 300 BC. Right. It's the closest thing science has to eternal truths, I guess. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Although uh, somebody once told me, and I think they were right, uh, that uh, philosophy is actually another area where, um, as you may know, you know, Alfred North Whitehead once wrote that all of Western philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato. <laughs> so, uh, so, so in philosophy, we also still use uh, many of the ideas yes. of, of of the the ancients, uh, but but in many of the sciences, we don't really. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's interesting. I mean, one thing that strikes me reading and get, getting an historical view of this is um, it's only really a couple hundred years ago that that religion overtly was taken out of the equation, right? I mean, Galileo, Kepler, Copernicus, um, to some extent Darwin. I mean, they lived in a world that was infused with religion and their religious imagination was not quite separate from their scientific imagination. But then, you know, that that changed culturally and it changed in the culture of science. And we have ever more increasingly sophisticated systems of logic. And yet... um, in science right now, and especially in, in physics, it seems to me that there's as much mystery that, as there ever was, or more mystery, that that there's less determinism, <laughs> right? That there's more that is simply bizarre and unanswerable. And that just seems like kind of a paradox to me to have um, those two phenomena side by side. Yes, I mean, but you, you must realize that something somewhat similar happened also in terms of the relationship between philosophy and science. You know that Galileo's position was called a philosopher. Right. Um, So all the people who dealt with natural sciences were at one point called philosophers. But once physics in particular started to become more mathematical and more quantitative, then philosophy and science, like physics, you know, sort of parted ways in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though they continued 
to some extent to deal with with the same or similar questions they still you know went on on somewhat different paths the the parting of of religion and science i think happened roughly around the same time mm-hmm. um so as uh, physics became in particular more more predictive um then you know this is when people started to talk less in terms of of religion and so on and and more you know in terms of uh, okay when they want to describe nature they talk in terms of precise sciences you know and so on um so i i think that that happened now you're absolutely right that with uh, you know with the realization of quantum mechanics and so on uh, we did discover that our world is not deterministic uh, it's not fully deterministic in the sense that we cannot really predict uh, the results of an experiment we can only predict the probabilities of different results right. uh, which is not the same thing yes i mean the probabilities are actually fully deterministic i mean we can use quantum mechanics to calculate the probabilities for different results okay. but we cannot calculate the results themselves um so so that is yeah an interesting development of the 20th century I'm Krista Tippett and this is on being today with astrophysicist Mario Livio His career working with the Hubble Telescope at the Space Telescope Science Institute spanned three decades. My sense is that, so for example, there's the part of you that loves art and then there's the part of you that does science. And my sense is that you you don't need your science to reflect on that one way or the other. You don't need your science to tie up all the questions of life. Well, the questions of life are very, very complex, of course. Um, I try to answer much simpler questions as, you know, some very distinct phenomena that we observe in the universe and which we don't understand, you know, like this phenomenon of dark energy uh, that is pushing the universe to expand faster and faster. Um, so we don't, at the moment, we hardly have a clue what that is. Uh, and I've given quite a bit of thought to what this might be, and uh, I must say not with much success so far. <laughs> um, but so I do try to use my science to answer very um, specific questions. I mean, the thing is that in science, unless you have a, a well-defined problem, and and in mathematics too then it is virtually impossible to actually answer it right so i try to uh, you know when i look at some phenomenon that is about the universe i try to ask myself okay what is the biggest question we don't understand about this uh and then i try to see if i can do anything to try to answer that question now when it comes to things such as as life and things like that these are inherently very complex uh situations uh where you know i wouldn't even dare try to i mean i very often i don't even know what question to pose let alone <laughs> to try to find an answer that's a good way to make that distinction 
That's true of life. We, if we, we're often not even asking the right question. No, I mean, you know, there are, of course, people, you know, that, that uh, you know, do very, very important work in this respect. But mm-hmm. they try to take, I mean, the people who do the best work are those who try to take baby mm-hmm. steps instead of, you know, trying to. Uh, so, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Jack Shostak who tries to do work on the origin of life. Okay, so, mm-hmm. so, so very simple experiments. I mean, you know, they don't try to... Uh, you know, take a test tube and see whether a baboon walk, walks out of that. Right. Um, they, they try to do very, very simple experiments on how, for example, a membrane can form, you know, or something mm. like that and so on. And I think that that's the way to, to make real progress in these areas. I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Um, Please. I've, I've read that, uh, that something that's important to you is that that science and mathematics should be communicated better and in the same way that literature and poetry are as part of human culture. And I think that's... That is absolutely true, yes. So I wonder, um, you're at the Hubble Telescope. We've hardly even spoken about that. But um, so how, if I ask you how you would like people to imagine the work you're doing there as part of culture, you know, um, so, actually, yeah. the work I do with the Hubble, that, that's the easiest part okay. to actually deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because, because, you know, if Hubble has done one thing, other than all the scientific discoveries, uh, what Hubble has done is it, it has literally taken the, you know, the excitement of discovery and brought it into the homes of people. I mean, you know, you see now Hubble images everywhere. I just saw the other day some, uh, you know, one of these late night shows where where a person, you know, just started showing Hubble images one <laughs> after another, you know, and so on. So, uh, and, you know, the rock group Pearl Jam chose a Hubble image for the cover of one of their albums. All right. um, so, so there is, Hubble images are so astounding and they are so visually beautiful. Um, that uh, people really can appreciate this because in that case, they do something that is in some sense even more than a work of art because on one hand, they are extraordinarily beautiful and at the same time, people realize that this is something real that exists out there. Mm. You know, it doesn't come out just from somebody's imagination. So they realize that there is all this incredible beauty in the universe that surrounds us. So, so Hubble has really been fantastic in, in communicating science to the public and hopefully uh, inspiring young people in particular uh, to get uh, more into the sciences. Um, again and again, scientific discovery has reframed uh, our cultural imagination about who we are and what the cosmos is and our place in it. So I want to ask you, you know, what are you working on now that, that comes closest to doing that for you? And where, where you, you know, what are you working on now that you think might ultimately reframe not just your imagination, but all of our imagination about some of these big questions? Well, one thing I mentioned is that I'm involved in these studies of this dark energy. I Mm -hmm. mean, we uh, we knew that our universe was expanding. We knew that since uh, the 1920s, uh, but we thought that this expansion should slow down. Instead, in 98, we discovered that the expansion is speeding up. Uh, it is propelled by something. Uh, for lack of a better name, we call this something dark energy. 
And we now know that this dark energy is more than 70% of the energy of the universe, mm. but we still don't know what it is. So that's one thing we're trying to basically find more of the properties of this dark energy. On the other hand, I try to work on extrasolar planets. By that, I mean planets around other stars. Okay. Um, you know, until 1995, we did not know of a single planet outside the solar system that revolves around a sun-like star. And we now know about mm. such planets that revolve around other stars. Because we've been able so, to see them? Well, um, we mostly we discover them just by the, their small gravitational pull on their parent star. But in a couple of cases, and Hubble actually played a very important role of this, we were able to actually image you know, a, a planet like this. Mm. Um, with any luck, uh, you know, we will eventually uh, be able to even see them directly. And we have started to determine uh, the composition of the atmospheres of some of these planets, you know, and so on. And of course, the ultimate goal would be eventually to find if there is life elsewhere, right. intelligent life in particular. Right. Uh, so, so part of my work is about, about these. So I in some sense, I work about some of the smallest things, namely planets around other stars, and uh, about some of the biggest things, I mean, things that push the universe as a whole. One of the things that we have done in, in, in science in general and and in physics in particular, is, you know, we continuously push both farther and farther back in time and, uh, you know, into areas that we didn't know before. So, uh, you know, for example, you know, until, uh, I don't know, Copernicus, we thought that uh, the Earth is the center of the universe. Uh, we then discovered that the Earth is not even at the center of the solar system. We then discovered that the solar system is not at the center of, of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, we are about two-thirds of the way out. Uh, then, you know, astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that uh, there are billions of galaxies like, like ours. And in fact, with the Hubble Space Telescope, we have shown that there are about 200 billion galaxies like ours just in the observable right. universe right. and so on. And, of course, we also, in terms of time, uh, we now can talk about things that happened a fraction of a second after the, you know, all space and time of the universe came into being. Now, the interesting thing is that even though we keep pushing these boundaries and so on, we somehow always find new mysteries. <laughs> I mean, you know, un until 1998, we didn't know that this dark energy exists. And now, you know, we know it's the dominant form of energy of our universe. So somehow, you know, you whenever you think that you've reached some sort of a, you know, that you cannot go beyond, okay, this is all that there is to know and so on, somehow we discover that there is yet something even more mysterious right. uh, that, that hides behind uh, all of that. And uh, this is very interesting because it also plays a very interesting role in terms of the human mind because 
you see, our physical existence uh, has become uh, more and more minuscule in all of this. Mm -hmm. But our minds, you know, uh, somehow manage to get around all of this. You know, all of these things are discoveries that we made. (laughs) So in that sense... Uh, we are very central to all of this. I mean, if we didn't make these discoveries, we wouldn't be talking about them. We are very central, uh, even as everything we are discovering makes us smaller and smaller in the grand exactly. scheme of things. Physically smaller, uh-huh. physically smaller and smaller, but our minds become more and more important, mm-hmm. you know, in, in all of these things, because our minds expand at the same rate well, our knowledge, if you like, expands at the same rate that everything I talked about in the universe. I mean, we will discover more and more things about life, about mm-hmm. how the brain works, you know, about how life originated, all, all these things. Um, so, so this is really very, very fascinating, you know, of how uh, we are doing all of this. And, you know, just imagine what would happen if or when uh, we discover intelligent life elsewhere. Right. <laughs> right. You know, this will be a, a, a revolution that, you know, the humankind has never experienced, actually. And, you know, one of the places this takes me is back to, is just, and I don't know what the future will be of this science-religion discussion or interplay or whatever that is, um, but part of where it came to in the 20th century was this idea that science was pushing religion farther and farther out of the picture because science ultimately was going to answer all the questions, right? But as you're saying, what's happened in the 21st century as we've built on these discoveries of the 20th century is that, in fact, there's just this exponential increase in questions and even in, in what you call mystery, well, or I mean, religious uh, people, know, even. Lord Kelvin, you know, is uh, thought is, is has been claimed to have said that you know that uh, everything has been actually solved already, and there are just two small problems that <laughs> remain to be solved. And as it turned out, those two problems led to quantum mechanics and general relativity, <laughs> the two greatest right. uh, scientific revolutions of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, surely this is how things are. Are happening, and uh, we have had a number of occasions of you know uh, there are those things where uh, you know the, the, another famous physicist once said, "Who ordered this?" Uh, you know, I mean, so who ordered dark energy? You know, I mean, as if we didn't have enough, you know, to explain as it was already, and then suddenly this thing uh, appears, and it's now the the most perhaps intriguing question in all of physics. Right. You, you know, some people sometimes ask me if I'm fascinated by science fiction and. I like to say that actually real science is way more fascinating than any science fiction I've ever read (laughs) Uh, because, you know, there is really so much, uh, you know, uh, there to to do and there is so much room for imagination and creativity uh, that uh, I I certainly hope that, you know, people will will go more into that and, and, you know, do more of mathematics, science, engineering, you know, and so on. And, and I don't mean by that that everybody needs to become a mathematician. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. I mean, God forbid if everybody was a, a, a mathematician. Even um, if God is a mathematician. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 but what I mean by that is that 
you know, understanding indeed that mathematics and physics and so on is, is a part of human culture mm-hmm. and a very important part uh, of, of human culture, uh, which has also led us to, you know, where we are to, to a large extent um, right now is something that is extraordinarily important for society in general and even for people who at the end don't become professional scientists. I mean, thinking in those terms, you know, and learning those logical systems and the tools that are provided by things like mathematics are very important for every aspect of our our everyday life. Olivio is an astrophysicist and science educator who spent 24 years with the Hubble Space Telescope. His current research centers on the emergence of life in the universe. His most recent book is Galileo and the Science Deniers, and he's also the author of The Golden Ratio and Is God a Mathematician? On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Loren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Gautam Shrikashen, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, and Amy Chatelaine. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.